Hello, and welcome to part two of two of our Clotbusters mini Grand Round series. In this episode, we discuss the use of thrombolytics in the setting of cardiac arrest. Last week, we discussed the mechanisms of action of thrombolytics, and we discussed their use in the setting of massive and submassive PE. If you missed the first episode, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode prior to joining us for this week's discussion. Coronary artery disease is the most common cause of cardiac arrest, typically due to massive MI or ischemia-related arrhythmias. This happens in about 56 to 88% of cases. Massive PE may account for 10% of unexplained cardiac arrests. Think H's and T's. Two of the T's are cardiac or pulmonary thrombosis. Per the package insert, Altaplace is approved for acute MI. However, cardiac arrest due to suspected PE or MI is not an approved indication. And going along with that, we have no dosing regimens listed for this indication. Altaplace has numerous absolute contraindications, including active bleeding, recent intracranial or intraspinal surgery, serious head trauma, intracranial conditions, severe hypertension, stroke within the previous three months, and bleeding diatheses such as vitamin K deficiency, hemophilia, and DIC. Remember that although we have to be aware of these contraindications, sometimes we will not know many of these criteria during a cardiac arrest situation. There are also a lot of relative contraindications that you should know, but these are not routinely considered heavily in life or death situations such as cardiac arrest and for that matter, massive PE. There are a multitude of studies that have attempted to determine if thrombolytics are effective in cardiac arrest. The studies looked at a wide array of cardiac arrest scenarios. Some looked at cardiac arrests thought to be due to MI or PE, others looked specifically at out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, and yet others looked at all cardiac arrests unresponsive to initial therapy. Most of the studies used Altaplace or Tenecteplase, and not surprisingly, the studies came to different conclusions. For example, in 2001, Letterer et al. published a retrospective review in cardiac arrest patients with suspected cardiac origin. Altaplace was given as a 15mg bolus, followed by 85mg over 90 minutes, in 108 patients and compared it to 216 controls. ROSC rates were significantly better in the Altaplace group compared to the control group, at 70% versus 51%. That's really cool, but then in 2002, Abu Laban et al. published a prospective randomized placebo-controlled trial looking at Altaplace administration in 117 patients with PEA arrest unresponsive to initial therapy. The dose of Altaplace in this study was a 100mg bolus. Contrary to the first study, there was no difference in rates of ROSC at about 20% each. Of the other studies, some concluded that thrombolytics during cardiac arrest unresponsive to standard ACLS measures was associated with increased rates of ROSC, short-term survival, and neurologically intact survival to hospital discharge. Others concluded that there was no evidence that Altaplace given during CPR improved ROSC or survival to hospital discharge. Interestingly, a few of these studies did conclude that their negative results could not be generalized to highly selected patients with cardiac arrest, particularly those with suspected or known PE. 
as these patients could potentially benefit most from thrombolytics. This is the biggest point I want to drive home during this episode. How about we give thrombolytics to patients that are most likely to benefit? In other words, patients who have a higher likelihood of PE as a cause of the cardiac arrest. This makes sense as we already know that thrombolytics work in the setting of massive PE, which if you remember, includes pulselessness. So, which patients are the most likely to have a PE? Firstly, PE should be suspected in critically ill patients who have a history of or symptoms associated with PE. This includes tachypnea, chest pain, sweating, and shortness of breath. Factors with the highest association with PE include unilateral leg swelling, O2 sats less than 95%, active cancer, recent immobilization or orthopedic surgery, and recent prolonged airline travel. Secondly, patients with PEA arrest have a higher incidence of PE than do patients who present with other rhythms, so seeing this rhythm in particular should immediately have us thinking about a possible PE. Thirdly, by using point-of-care ultrasound to appreciate right ventricular dilation in the absence of left ventricular distension, especially in the setting of PEA arrest, can be a sign of PE. In one study, 64% of patients who presented with PEA and right ventricular enlargement without left ventricular distension had a PE. Then in 2004, a few authors took this a step further. They wanted to create some kind of decision-making rule to try to find out which patients in cardiac arrest were likely to have PE as the cause, and might therefore benefit most from thrombolytic therapy. They found the following triad to be associated with cardiac arrest secondary to PE. A witnessed cardiac arrest, age less than 65 to 70 years, and PEA as the initial rhythm. But even using this triad, only about 50% of patients had a PE on autopsy. This is still pretty much a coin flip, But without this decision tool, all we know is that about 10% of patients with cardiac arrest have a PE, so it is better than nothing. What do the guidelines say? The 2010 ACLS guidelines say that thrombolytics should not routinely be used in cardiac arrest. However, when PE is presumed or known to be the cause of the cardiac arrest, thrombolytic therapy can be considered both during cardiac arrest and post-ROSC. Unfortunately, in 2015, thrombolytic therapy was not reviewed. If you do choose to give alteplase during cardiac arrest, which dose should you use? Studies used a 50mg bolus, a 100mg bolus, a 15mg bolus followed by an 85mg infusion, or weight-based dosing with a maximum dose of 100mg. So we can conclude that the effective dose of alteplase in this setting is somewhere between 50 to 100 milligrams given as an infusion or a bolus. As a matter of fact, the 2019 European Society of Cardiology does list a dose of 0.6 milligrams per kilogram with a maximum dose of 50 milligrams given over 15 minutes in the setting of cardiac arrest or massive PE. Therefore, at my site, we recommend a dose of 50 milligrams as an IV push in patients weighing greater than or equal to 70 kilograms and a weight-based dose of 0.6 mg per kilogram with a maximum dose of 50 mg in patients weighing less than 70 kg. This dose can be repeated in 15 to 30 minutes. 
If you recall from part one, we use the same dose in the setting of massive PE. Also remember that if you do give Alteplase, you should continue CPR for at least 15 minutes to ensure it has enough time to circulate and bring about ROSC prior to terminating efforts. In conclusion of this grand round series, we have learned that administering thrombolytics in the setting of massive PE is highly recommended. However, in the setting of submassive PE or cardiac arrest, the use of these agents is more controversial and we have to weigh risks versus benefits on a case-by-case basis. We have also learned that, as is often the case, less drug is more. Thrombolytics have a dose-dependent risk of bleeding, so why not use the lowest effective dose? We know that in the setting of massive and submassive PE, lower doses of alteplase are safe and effective with less bleeding rates, especially in low-weight patients. Less drug also means less cost, to both the facility and the patient. A 100 mg vial of Alteplase costs around $10,000, and the 50 mg vial is half of that at $5,000. Remember that this is the wholesale price. The patient is usually charged more in the hospital to account for pharmacy and nursing times, as well as other fees. We have also learned that less time is more. By that, I mean in the extremely high-stress situations of massive PE and cardiac arrest, we can simply push the alteplase versus giving it as an IV infusion lasting up to two hours. As always, thank you so much for your time. I hope you found the series useful. If you have any comments or any differences in your own practice, please leave a comment on errxpodcast.com. <laughs>